Hello and welcome to Elucidations, an unexpected philosophy podcast. I'm Matt Teichman. I'm Charlie Wyland. With us today is Sarah Protasi, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Puget Sound, and she is here to discuss the philosophy of envy. Sarah Protasi, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So unlike a lot of the topics that come up on this show, I think probably most people listening have some idea of what they think envy is. But I thought maybe we could just start with like a quick everyday example of like, what's a textbook case of envy? Sure. I think that a, a really neat but simple case of envy is the emotion that Cinderella's stepsisters feel for Cinderella. In fact, I mean, we find envy in a lot of folk tales. Um, we can find envy in Snow White. We can find envy in Sleeping Beauty. And of course, there are common patterns uh, here that we could talk about. But I like thinking about Cinderella because it is, exemplifies some general features of envy that are supported in empirical literature. So they feel this painful emotion towards someone whom is similar to them in many respects and whom they perceive as similar to them because, of course, they are stepsisters. Even though they have a different mother, they come from a similar background, they are more or less similar in age. But, of course, they differ in one important quality, and that is Cinderella is supposed to be prettier, which for women is supposed to be an important quality, and we'll set aside the politics of that. You know, pretend that's uh, relevant. <laughs> and... And so the idea there is that they perceive themselves to be in a disadvantageous position. And they, in this case, which is most cases that people tend to think of when they think about envy, they actually feel hostility, right? They want to harm her. And, and we know how the fable goes. They actually fail, but they do their best to try to bring Cinderella down to their level so that she doesn't become a princess, so, I mean, I can talk a bit more about how that is reflected in other um, circumstances, but in my work, I define envy as a painful emotion, a painful reaction to a perceived disadvantage or inferiority to a similar other with regard to a domain of self-importance. So we don't feel envy with regard to things that we don't care much about. So envy really tells us what we care about, uh, even when we're not aware of it um, somehow. Right. So there's a lot in that definition. And maybe just two things I'll draw attention to that certainly I wouldn't have thought of before sitting down with you. So one of them is this idea that in order for me to envy another person, I have to perceive myself as being similar to them in some way, in some important way. Correct. So like it would be weird for me to be, I don't know, envious of Barack Obama for having been president because I don't imagine myself as the kind of person who's like a potential presidential candidate. Yes. Something like that. Yes. And again, it is a, a perceived similarity. So, of course, it's hard for a bystander to judge, right? So sometimes, well, you just said that you, you don't perceive the similarity, but imagine that instead you felt you'd be a great presidential candidate, even though other people might think that that's an insane idea, I right? drive around in a van. I'm like, hey, you pass out flyers, vote for me for president. I have the idea that I am a great presidential candidate. Right, then right. In, in which case you could feel envy. Yeah, right. yeah. 
But otherwise, if we feel that there is a big gap in talent, in situation, in background, we tend to not feel envy for people who are, who are not in the same comparison class, so to speak. Now, of course, sometimes it also depends on what's salient to you. And there might be moments in which you, for instance, you know, how do we feel envy for celebrities, right? Well, perhaps we're thinking of them as other human beings like us, and we're comparing ourselves along some kind of very general dimension. Perhaps we're thinking about our love life, right? And we think that the, the celebrity is just another person like us, and why do they have uh, such a happier romantic life than we do, right? In which case you can feel envy. So it is all a matter of perceived similarity and what's salient to you at a certain moment. Yeah, I would almost think that in those sort of cases, something like resentment might come up. Uh, um, so would you say that maybe resentment is similar to envy in some way? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so distinguishing envy from resentment is really complicated. Um, not so much in theory for once, but in practice. So in theory, most authors and especially philosophers, um, but also psychologists, distinguish between envy and resentment along the dimension of the kind of appraisal or the kind of thoughts that are involved in the emotion. So resentment is an intrinsically moral emotion. When I feel resentment, I perceive not just a disadvantage, but some kind of injustice, some kind of wrongdoing. Something has been taken away from me, or I'm entitled to a certain advantage and I don't have it. Whereas envy is an amoral emotion. It need not be moral. It doesn't have to have any kind of moral content. And so, for instance, if the situation between me and the envied were reversed, imagine that, you know, I'm Cinderella's stepsister and I envy her because she's prettier. If magically things were reversed, I would be totally fine with it because it's not a matter of justice whether I'm beautiful or not. Whereas in a situation where, I mean, ideally, uh, if you feel resentment and that's a moral emotion, if the other person were to lack that disadvantage, if it's really moral, you should fight for them, right? You should be indignant on their behalf. You should w not want for that injustice to be perpetrated against the other person either. However, what happens in practice is because of the social stigma and the moral condemnation that envy encounters in most cultural contexts and societies, since we think of envy as a bad emotion, we confabulate, we tell stories so that instead of feeling envy, we think that we feel resentment, that there is some kind of injustice. And so that's a way of assuaging our sense of guilt and shame for feeling an emotion that is so condemned. So in practice, psychologists have observed how resentment masquerades as envy. And so it's really hard to disentangle the two in practice and in empirical studies and so forth. So maybe like to take an example Maybe I'm in an essay competition with somebody else, and the other person wins the essay prize. It'll be resentment if I feel that's totally unfair, it's unjustified. They should not have gotten the prize. They did not deserve the prize. That makes it resentment. Whereas if these like words like they deserve it or it's justified don't come up and I just feel like, oh, I wish I'd gotten the prize, then it's more like a case of envy. So there's, I don't know if it's even possible to study this empirically, but anecdotally, in my experience, Deep down, we know. Deep down, we know if what we're feeling is some kind of moral righteous emotion 
or if we're just pissed that someone has something we don't have. Uh, even though, again, on the outside, we might. So here's why it gets tricky. There is a sense of unfairness that it's fatalistic. It's about, oh, the world is unfair in the same way as sometimes, you know, why why did I get rained on and someone else didn't, right? We have a way of talking about this kind of global unfairness in a way that it's derivative and it's not proper injustice. And so because of that, sometimes we can feel that sense of entitlement to things even though we know we're not really entitled to it, right? So again, that's why it gets tricky. But I think that deep down, um, we know what the difference is. And I, I have no empirical proof of this, but I believe the phenomenology must be different. It could be difficult to tell in a particular case because just because of all the emotions I'm feeling about it. But uh, I think I agree that, like, in principle, we have some idea that there's that distinction, which there could be clear cases of. Right. So philosophers like to use this expression, counterfactual. Um, and the idea here is imagine another possible world where the situation is is really similar, but the only thing that is different is that the role between you and the envied are reversed. How would you feel? I think if you engage in that kind of exercise... And you can honestly tell yourself, yes, I would fight for this injustice anyway. Then I think that what you're feeling is resentment. But sometimes, you know, we don't think that way. And that is envy. Of course, I also want to say envy and resentment can occur, right? You can feel both, which also complicate things further. And it might also be that in practice, there are some gray areas, some hybrid cases where it's really hard to tell what emotion you're feeling. I mean, you know, these are these are models that try to explain a very complex reality. So you can't always draw distinctions as neatly as you do with molecules or something like that. Okay, so we've established some differences between feeling resentment and feeling envy. What about being jealous? Is that the same thing as being envious? Great question. A lot of people, especially English speakers, um, tend to use envy and jealousy as synonyms. But in fact, uh, both psychologists and philosophers use them as two different concepts and different words that refer to two different emotions. Now, there are, of course, in philosophy, many different theories, but a prevalent one that is also utilized by many psychologists and some anthropologists is the following. Um, In a slogan, envy is about lack, whereas jealousy is about loss or potential loss. So imagine that, well, we can go back to the Cinderella's example, but uh, let's think that in this case, it's about a dress. There is a the beautiful dress for the ball. And imagine that the stepsisters have this beautiful dress and they don't want to loan it to Cinderella. They are jealous of their property. They feel they're entitled to their dress and they don't want to give it to someone who's perceived as a competitor. Now, of course, we often talk about jealousy in romantic context, but there is also a sense of jealousy in which we think of it as like a protective emotions of something that we feel we're entitled to. But if instead the dress is the dress that the fairy godmother has given to Cinderella, then the stepsister will be envious of that dress. Uh, It's something that she lacks and that she wants for herself. So this emotion, this is a covetous emotion. I want that thing that I don't have. But in both cases, we can think of these emotions as rivalrous emotions that have to do with some object that is perceived as good and important. 
there will be a lot more to be said about this, but one thing that I want to point out is that scholars on this topic hypothesize that the reason why linguistically people tend to use jealousy a lot more than envy is because jealousy has this idea of entitlement and protecting something that is ours, which is obviously less morally reproachable than wanting something that you don't have, right? And wanting to potentially take away an object from someone else. And so jealousy is perceived as a less socially condemnable emotion. And so people think that maybe that's why we say I'm jealous, especially when saying, oh, I'm so jealous is less threatening, uh, is less likely to um, engender um, feelings of fear in the person who's listening. And so a lot of times we talk about jealousy, especially when we want to talk about a positive kind of jealousy. Yeah, it's really interesting. I feel like when we um, object to somebody being jealous, usually the criticism isn't, oh, you shouldn't think it's bad for you to lose the thing. The criticism is rather, oh, it's unrealistic that you think the thing you have is under threat of being lost. Um, you're being like paranoid or something. It's like, we feel like uh, jealous people usually get criticized for being too paranoid. Exactly. But so notice that I think generally we make that criticism when we think that jealousy is disproportionate. It's as if envy is bad no matter the amount. Nobody thinks, oh, you're too envious. It's just being envious is enough to be condemned. Whereas jealousy, some people say like, oh, if you're a little jealous, it means you really care about her. Right. A little bit of romantic jealousy is almost taken as a compliment, whereas a little bit of envy is often not considered as a compliment to the envy, even though in practice it may be. So you've talked a lot about how envy is often reproached. It's seen as a bad thing. Is that just because the envier is harboring these feelings of ill will towards another person and to have unwarranted negative feelings towards another person is seen as a morally bad thing? So I think that's the perception. Now, of course, in my book, I actually argue that there are different kinds of envy and not all of them involve feelings of hostility for the envied. At the same time, it is undeniable that sometimes envy does involve um, feelings of hostility and desire to harm the envied and to take away the envied good from them or even to spoil the good. So that is, I think, the root of the moral condemnation, and rightly so. When you feel that kind of destructive envy, you can be a very dangerous person. So it makes sense that envy is condemned. So what would an example of envy without hostility look like? Good. Um, so again, I like to go back to relationships between uh, sister. Actually, maybe we can think about a case of envy between friends. Um, in the book, I talk about the series of novels uh, by Elena Ferrante. The first book is titled The Brilliant Friend. And this is a story of two very close female friends, two women who grew up in a neighborhood that is very poor and where they face a lot of difficulties. And they have this quite competitive but also quite loving relationship in which they experience a lot of envy. And some of this envy spurs them to self-improve. And so especially one of them ends up becoming a an intellectual, a scholar. And we can see throughout the book that she does so because she has this brilliant friend. In fact, at the end of the book, she realized that 
either could be the brilliant friend. You don't really know which one is the brilliant friend because they are so stimulating to each other. Um, a recent, I don't know, for those who have seen The Crown, the TV show The Crown. Um, I'm watching that right now, oh, actually. Good. Yep, so I'm in the middle of it. I think no it's spoilers. great to think about emotions in a philosophical way. So I don't want to spoil it too much, but there are a couple of episodes in which Queen Elizabeth, well, I mean, I can say this much. She has a pretty competitive relationship with Margaret, her sister. And they're pretty explicit about it at times. But sometimes we see the positive effects of that envy. And sometimes we see the negative effects of that envy. And so because they're so similar and they're in this very similar, you know, they, of course, come from the same family. But one of them is queen <laughs> and the other one is not. But one of them is the beautiful socialite and the other one is considered the dull one. So each of them has something that the other person doesn't have. And that can be a motivation to self-improve, but also, of course, it can turn bitter and uglier, and sometimes it does. But this kind of envy that I'm talking about, which I call emulative envy, does not involve hostility because what the person cares about the most is to achieve that good that they lack. And so taking it away from the envier wouldn't, in many situations, that's not possible. It doesn't work. You have to become as good as them. And so then you work hard on improving yourself. And there is a decent amount of empirical evidence now that studies this kind of envy and that supports this view. Wait a minute. Wait. So you're saying that envy doesn't have to be bad? Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, envy doesn't have to be bad. And I would go as far as to say that envy can be good. It can be good for you and it can even be good for other people, assuming that th the fact that someone improves their situation has positive effects on the community as a whole. In some sense, it's, you know, it's like when we talk about perhaps fair play or fair competition in sports, everybody gets better if there is a little bit of fair competition. Well, isn't that just admiration? What's the difference? Yeah, great question. Um, there are a lot of differences between admiration and emulative envy. So um, just to name a few, admiration is not an aversive or painful emotion. Um, admiration generally feels good. Admiration is usually felt for someone with whom there is a greater gap. And so it's not generally felt for a similar other. And again, it, it's a matter of perception, right? Uh, you might be able to feel both for the same person depending on how you're conceiving of them. Admiration doesn't have to be about something that is important to your sense of self. For instance, I might be able to admire Gandhi even though he couldn't be more different from me. There is nothing really similar between Gandhi and I. Admiration does not motivate to immediate self-improvement, although sometimes it motivates to improve in the long run. It might help you um, achieve long-term goals because it's more about the kind of person you'd like to be as opposed to achieving um, some kind of good, like some getting some good that you don't have. And finally, uh, another difference is that Admiration is an affiliative emotion. We actually want to get closer to the person we admire. We want to be friends with them. Uh, we want to become like them. 
Whereas emulative envy is not affiliative. It's still, there is still a little bit of an adversarial emotion. That person still makes me feel bad about myself. So I might want to emulate them, but I don't want to necessarily be their friends. I might not like them as a person. So it's not an affiliative emotion and it might still require you to detach a little bit. So they're actually quite different. And we do have quite a bit of empirical evidence now that distinguishes um, between these two emotions. Sometimes people sort of object to the idea that emulative envy might still be unpleasant, but we have some empirical evidence that shows that it is because it still involves this sense of super inferiority and nobody likes to feel like that. So the good kind of envy is what we're calling emulative envy and emulative, I guess, because the idea is uh, there's something we like about the person we envy and we want to imitate them. Yes. Um, so intuitively, this seems pretty close to the like kind of notion of friendly competition that you come across in a lot of movies and a lot of books. You'll have maybe two lead characters who grow up sort of um, you know playing games with each other or trying to be the number one versus the number two in class and all this kind of stuff. And they keep you know, pushing each other's limits. But then we call it friendly competition because at no point do either of them feel like they're inferiority to the other one is like holding them back or Mm -hmm. negatively impacting them or something like that. So is that right? Is it sort of the same idea or is it a little bit off? Um, I think it's the same idea in some ways, but not in others. I mean, you know, people are idiosyncratic. We're all different. It's possible, perhaps, for some people to have a friendly competition without feeling any envy proper. I'm personally a bit skeptical. I do think that there is going to be envy, which may or may not be acknowledged by the envier. However, I think talking about friendly competition masks the fact that even emulative envy, as I said, is painful and risks degenerating into less good kinds of envy. So here's an example. Emulative envy, in order to arise, not only requires a focus on the good that we lack, but also requires perceived control over the situation, perceived ability to overcome one's disadvantage. If that is lacking, I claim that emulative envy becomes or may become inert envy, where we're sulking and we're sullen and we think, oh, you know, I really would like to be like that, but I actually can't be like that. Um, so, and I think some people are like that, perhaps because they're insecure, they lack self-confidence, or sometimes the situation is such that they're actually not going to improve. And so friendly competition is a bit like the rosy version of reality. Um And I think that when you have, if you have an established history of competing for the same things with someone else, there's got to be moments where you end up feeling a different kind of envy. But I think that's okay. Um, You know, so I think maybe a better concept, sometimes people talk about frenemies. Um, and sometimes that just means that they're actually enemies. Sometimes people <laughs> use it like, you know, just, just my own, my nemesis or something like that. But frenemies actually could be someone you are friend with, but sometimes you do end up having feelings of envy. And some of that envy might be malicious. I think, in fact, we should cope and accept that, not just cope, we should accept the fact that all close relationships even very loving ones, when they're between peers um, and when there is a a scarcity of resources of some kind, 
it will involve some envy. And it happens between siblings, between friends, between lovers, between even parents and children. And it's a fact of life, and it's better for it to be out there in the open. And that's how you can actually learn how to either cope with it indirectly or try to feel emulative envy. A growth mindset, for instance, is important in, in this respect, right? A lot of time we think that, oh, we're doomed, we can't become better, but we can. Or sometimes you can, you know, shift the goalposts and think, okay, maybe I can't win this race. I can't, you know, get that dress in particular, but maybe I can win another race or I can get another dress. I can become the kind of person who achieves those goals, even though in some situations um, it is a zero-sum game and we can't actually get what the other person has. I'm kind of trying to wrap my mind around the idea that this type of envy, emulative envy, is painful but still good. Mm. Um, so is it kind of like working out where like, mm. oh, I go for a run now and I'm out of shape and it's you know kind of unpleasant, but like in the long term, it's good. Is it sort of like that? Or like what does painful but good mean here? I think it is kind of like that. I do think that there is a sense in which it's good instrumentally. It's good for you in the long run. But I think unlike the case that you're describing, there is, for instance, also an epistemic goodness in the sense it's a so epistemic means that it's related to knowledge. And so, for instance, feeling envy might um, have what psychologists call signaling value. It tells you what you care about. So it can reveal things about yourself that you didn't know. And of course, that kind of signaling value comes from any kind of envy. But emulative envy in particular, I explored the idea that it could be a virtuous attitude um, if it involves this disposition to improve yourself, to accept your limitations and to try to move past them. And so maybe it's a bit more than just, you know, overcoming the pain that comes from exertion. Yeah, it's fascinating, like the idea that like a uh, pain can make you morally better or something. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, we, we do think it's not as uncontroversial to think that there are some painful emotions that we think of as good, not just for its consequences, for what they're. So grief, right, is a case of a very painful emotion, but we would not want to do without grief because it's, you know, I mean, we can interpret it in various ways. We can have various explanations as to why grief is morally good or appropriate, but I don't think we would want to deny that. So after talking about envy on a personal level, you go on to talk about it on a population level or a political level. So do you want to talk about some examples of envy in the political realm or in, a, in the larger realm? Sure. One context um, in which envy is discussed at the political level, at the group level, is with regard to anti-Semitism, and unfortunately, the Jewish genocide, the Shoah. And it's not, alas, it's not the only genocide um, with regard to which uh, envy is mentioned. Uh, another case is the Rwandan genocide. Um, in both cases, scholars have talked about envy as one of the emotions that were felt by the perpetrators of um, such horrific violence. And it is somewhat surprising that philosophers have not discussed that topic more. So one of the things that I try to do um, at the end of the book is to think about whether envy can play a positive role in the public sphere. 
And the answer is that it's complicated and perhaps actually it's not possible. So here's why. When I talk about emulative envy, as I said, I talk about the importance of of being focused on the good that we lack as opposed to being focused on the envied. And so not seeing the envied as a rival to beat or destroy or to take away things from. In a lot of political interactions, if we're looking at group level, it is natural to see the other group as the outgroup, the group that is different from ours. I mean, it is just part of the dynamic between groups that people who are not in my group are perceived as the outgroup, as different from me. And so already the fact that there is this dissimilarity hinders envy to core. But then, of course, as I just said, there are cases where people have talked about envy. And so in the book, I try to analyze, okay, how do we manage to perceive the group as similar, but then hostile? And so that's when bad envy, the malicious kind of envy arises. And so, but but rather than going into that, what I want to say is that a lot of times, it's hard to not feel hostility when we see that another group has something that we don't have. And I'm still working a little bit on understanding why that's the case. As I said, there is not a lot of literature on this. And so it's a bit hard to understand the phenomenon empirically. But I try to think about the case of possibly um, Asian Americans as a possible group in contemporary U.S. that could be the target of emulative envy. Because I was trying to think of a group that is perceived as advantaged along some dimensions, for instance, academic success. And the envier in this case would be sort of the lower middle class white population. And this line of thinking was stimulated by thinking about affirmative action, by thinking about the experiences in my own classroom, and, and by looking for a case that was somewhat analogous but different from the case of envy toward Jews. And I have to say, the problem with thinking about these cases is that it's really hard to disentangle envy from prejudice, from racial prejudice. And racial prejudice is almost always antagonistic. I mean, even when it's positive prejudice, so to speak, it's never really (laughs) positive. It's not friendly, Um, right? There is always this kind of adversarial relation. There's this way of thinking of the other group as different and not in a good way. And so, I mean, in the book, I go on in, I mean, it gets slightly more tentative. But overall, I'm actually kind of pessimistic about the possibility for emulative envy to play a positive role in the public sphere. Because I think at the moment, for instance, in the contemporary U.S., there's a lot of antipathy. There's a lot of emphasis on division. And so I'm not sure that emulative envy can at this time in the racist world that we live in, in the classist world that we live in, in a society that is so divided, it's not clear to me that emulative envy can find a place. Is that because it's hard for like one group to kind of imitate another group the way one person could imitate another person in the examples we were discussing earlier? Um, I, I think it's more complicated. I mean, in the book, I talk a little bit about cases in which that seems to have happened. So for instance, The civil rights movement, we find, I mean, of course, there is the black activists who are fighting for African-Americans rights, right? And then we have sort of forms of activism that have emulated 
black activism. For instance, you have, you know, Asian Americans or disabled students who have emulated black students who have, you know, there is a black student union. And then now you have um, Asian Pacific Islander unions and um, and things like that. But note that those are groups that already are perceive themselves as at the bottom of the social hierarchy. So there are some similarities between them. Um and also, sometimes there have been clashes <laughs> between these groups, too. If emulative envy can arise in this situation, it's pretty delicate. I think also another reason is that when we get into the political sphere, a lot becomes about just or unjust distribution of resources. And so that's where I think resentment might be a more appropriate emotion. You might need an explicitly moral emotion to deal with this. And so that's why I'm not sure. Whereas in in personal relationships, a lot of things need not be moral or having to do with wrongdoing. Yeah, when you talked about kind of like racist sentiments that are, you know, maybe in the air, the first thing I thought about was um, feelings about maybe immigrants from certain countries that they're coming to, quote unquote, take our jobs. And there it really feels like it has to do with the distribution of a limited resource, and therefore it's more like a case of what we're calling resentment than envy. Yeah, absolutely. So, but here's, you're right, but actually that's exactly what made me think about envy, and here's why. A lot of times it seems that people talking this way are not in good faith, because if things were reversed, they would be completely okay (laughs) with them having all the jobs and these (laughs) other people not having the jobs. Right. I mean, of course, they tell themselves that it's an injustice. But, you know, if you think about it, is it really? I mean, why is it just that people who were just happened to be born in another part of the world have to starve to death, whereas we are fine? <laughs> right. Why? There is no if you think about it globally, it, it is not really an injustice. If but the job it, needs to get done and they're doing the work. Like, obviously, why not hire them to do it if they're qualified? Right. You know, right. Something in the logic of a job. That's being undercut here. Right. And especially because generally what happens in these cases is that when this new workforce comes, envy doesn't start right away, right? At first, they get paid so much less for jobs that nobody wants. And so that's okay with people. It's when the outgrowth starts to organize and maybe they get paid better and maybe they actually start to, you know, infringe on what people think of as their rights, then that that phenomenon starts. And sure, it's mixed with resentment. But it's not clear to me that it's just resentment because, again, if things were, you know, in a counterfactual scenario, a lot of these people would be totally fine with taking all the jobs. And, you know, there is – I mean, it's more complicated than that. I was talking to David Livingston Smith, who's an expert on dehumanization. Um, We were talking about these issues in a conversation, and he pointed out that even with um, racial groups that are scorned, and despised. Sometimes there are moments in which there is envy. For instance, he was talking about how white supremacists or white racists might, of course, look down upon blacks, but also sometimes envy their supposed superior physical strength or their, I don't know, their sexuality or things like that. I mean, of course, this is all, you know, 
can I say bullshit? <laughs> but, but so so but you know there is this perceived <laughs> uh, there is this perceived superiority, and so it's interesting how in racial relationships, in in racist uh, interactions, scorn, contempt, and envy may alternate. And a lot of times, again, it's not really about justice, right? It's this out-group, in-group dynamic in which you see the other as a competitor. But it doesn't have to be really about justice. It's about you want to be in a better position. So I don't know if it's even possible to think about um, racial groups without thinking about racism. But if we could somehow do that thought experiment where we say, you know, imagine that we live in a country without racism. Do you see emulative envy being more possible? Yeah, I mean, I I have to be very cautious here. I agree with you that it's not clear we can think about races without racism. A lot of people would deny that that's possible. But we could perhaps think of groups. Uh, I mean, we could find perhaps a different way of determining social groups that do not involve hierarchical categories, so that perhaps do not involve, I don't know, gender, race, or sexual orientation, which is really hard. But perhaps Parkour versus skaters. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah, maybe. Right. Maybe we could think of jobs categories and think, okay, you know, look at the skaters have managed to get their own fantastic parks. So parkour, how do you say those who do parkour? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, parkourers. <laughs> parkourers uh, <laughs> managed to get their own fantastic parks, right? So, yeah. In, but perhaps this is where the limits, we encounter the limits of thought experiments, right? Perhaps that's where we see that you can't just scale up, that there is something about political relations, that there is something about the public sphere and relations at that level that hinders any kind of easy translation of models. I mean, so the, you know, the personal is always political in some sense, but perhaps, you know, the political cannot just borrow from the personal or something like that. Sour Protasi's book on this topic, called The Philosophy of Envy, is out now from Cambridge University Press. So go and get it while it's hot. Sour Protasi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.